Nature wants us to get triggered because it indicates where we need healing, and then we can actively participate in our own healing. Getting Discomfortable with Susan Campbell. Today's guest is a clinical psychologist and best-selling author of 11 books that look at authenticity, relationships, conflict resolution, and a body of work based on a book called Getting Real that I first heard about when I got interested in a movement known as Authentic Relating, which has been a really profound part of my journey. And Susan has recently released a new book entitled From Triggered to Tranquil. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Susan. It's great to be here with you, AJ. I've been looking through your bio and I've noted so many cool modalities that I am either interested in or interested in learning more about. Like, for example, I saw gestalt therapy, Buddhist psychology, uh, sex therapy, radical honesty. I actually interviewed Brad Blanton last year. I have a sense that you're sort of something I aspire to be, which is an endless learner, someone who is constantly taking in new modalities and ideas. Does that fit for you? That fits for me. And I want to go back at you, AJ. When I heard your presentation on the STOA, I said, that's like a younger version of me. Wow. Well, that's very flattering. (laughs) I just like everything. I want to kind of download your brain and learn all of these different modalities because they're sort of like right up my area of interest. And I feel like as I've been reading through your latest book, I've just been nodding and exclaiming. And I'll even admit, like, there's bits of like jealousy and envy coming up as I'm comparing myself to your words and being like, oh, that's how I should have said this. Or what a what a great an- analogy or metaphor. So I just wanted to like, you know, lean into the authenticity and say that I'm I'm admiring your work and learning from it and kind of aspiring to all be you. So that seems fitting. Well, I have a big smile on my face hearing you say that. As do I. (laughs) So I'd love to dive in to this topic of being triggered, because I, I really do think that it is one of the most impactful areas of thinking in my own life. And I've, you know, as I've been reading your latest book, I've been thinking, like, what would the world be like if most people could notice, understand, talk about, and work with their triggers? Like, that that strikes me as one of the most impactful cultural revolutions imaginable. What does that bring up for you when I say that? I'm 100% in agreement with that, and I really look forward to contributing to a world that is more literate around triggers. If everybody could just admit that we sometimes lose it based on unconscious things that are going on, which you can learn to understand and you can learn to heal. But if we could, if we could just find language for it, find acceptance around it, 
we could definitely work out a lot of the conflicts that now cause us to get divorces, go to war, get polarized as a society. I'm really passionate about this, making the world a better place through people learning about themselves and really taking that on as an exciting journey like you and I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a vulnerable journey. It's an exciting journey. It's, it's a humbling journey to see that we have these, these triggers, these mental states that can kind of hijack us and in a way turn us into a different sort of person. Does that feel true to what a trigger means to you? Yeah. Back way before I learned about triggers, I would say to myself, this person's behaving like a cornered animal. Mm. And that was probably back in the 70s. You know, I've I've been in psychotherapy practice since the 60s. And then I began to um, notice my own relationships and get a little clearer. Hey, wait a minute. I'm doing that too. And geez, mm-hmm. my husband, ooh. And uh, so... I used to call it buttons, you know, what to do when your buttons get pushed. So, yeah, um, there's a state that we go into when we're triggered that, as you said, it's the amygdala part of the brain getting hijacked to instantaneously assume that there's mortal danger about. And once we can learn what the process, how the process works and how to work with that process in ourselves. We can get our prefrontal cortex back online. And that's really important because that's where we feel safe. That's where we can create safety for our fellow human. And that's where we can feel empathy, problem solve, collaborate. We can't do any of that from the amygdala area of the brain. That's sort of like the cornered animal area of the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm 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 hearing this triggered state as something some some input that our body senses that says danger and it changes our brain as you said and in that brain state of danger this this amygdala hijack there's sort of like only so many um options or something it's just like only so many ways to be and none of them seem to be particularly skillful in the modern world. Does that sound true? Yeah, like your sense of once you're triggered, your sense of options become very, very narrow and you you go into your own characteristic trigger signature. I call it your trigger signature. Some Mm. of us are more fight. Some of us are more flight. Some of us are more freeze in terms of our characteristic reactions. And so I try to help people notice not not just fight, flight, freeze. There's a few other variations, but then to get really specific, like what stories does my mind play when I get triggered? At, at some point, we ought to really define triggers a little bit more, trigger reactions a little more, perhaps, AJ. But uh, I think most of our listeners have the idea by now that it's an, an intense, quick, emotional reaction to something that happens usually in your interpersonal relationships, but sometimes uh, in your own mind. So I was saying even a thought, characteristic tape loop that replays in your head every time somebody interrupts you in a group, and then your tape loop is, my voice doesn't matter, or that sort of thing. 
some kind, it taps into these, these trigger reactions. If we unpack them, like the statement, my voice doesn't matter, we might get a little tender because that, that statement right there, it, it might sound matter of fact, but it's, it's a fear story based on some ideas that you got about your relationship to the world usually connected to, we call it developmental trauma, Mm. not having some of your important childhood developmental needs met, like the need to feel safe or the need to have someone to go to, to reassure you when you are afraid or when you don't feel safe or when you get hurt, the need to feel loved, the need to feel like you're valued and important the need to be listened to. So that's like, if you were not listened to much as a child, somebody cuts you off in a group meeting, you're going to be more sensitive to that than somebody who was the center of the family's attention. I mean, if it was positive attention anyway. Mm. So our childhood wounds set us up for certain trigger sensitivities. And I like to think of them as sensitivities within our emotional body that it's good to be aware of so we can attend to those when triggering happens by some untoward, unexpected, unwanted stimulus from the outside, like a person cutting us off or a a tone of voice or a look that looks unfriendly. Those, all those sorts of things trigger people. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that as children, there's sort of experientially situations that kind of get, I don't know, summarized in our brain, our emotional body into triggers. It's like, okay, so we, we, we experience some developmental trauma, as you said, around not being listened to. And that kind of like solidified into something that our body is always looking out for. And then if noticed, turns us into a triggered state. Is that capturing it? Yeah. And let me just add in there, you're little and there's some assault on your healthy development, including just being neglected. It doesn't have to be abuse. Um, Being overly criticized, overly controlled, um, having an unreliable parent, like somebody you can't count on or you're afraid of. So let's say some of those early childhood experiences, they'll be so painful and overwhelming to that little person's nervous system. And sometimes these things happen way before we have memory, but they'll be, they'll be overwhelming to some degree because we haven't developed much capacity to hold intensity or hold discomfort, hold mm. emotional pain. So very often we will repress the whole memory or we'll repress that part of ourselves, the part of ourselves that was exuberant and attracted a lot of attention to ourselves. If that gets um, kind of violently punished or criticized, we might start going into our shell, for example. So certain parts of our humanness are kind of shut down and offline and unavailable to us. And that's for the purpose of keeping us safe, feeling relatively safe, so we can grow up into bigger humans 
who hopefully have more developed nervous systems and a bigger support system than just our parent or caregiver. Mm. So that it's almost like you have to be older to have the capacity to really work with some of these painful childhood emotions. It's like, so we've all got them kind of buried down there because back then we had no choice. Our nervous system often shut down or made up little stories like, oh, I'm not good enough. It must be me because it's just too painful to realize that I am in the care of a totally incapacitated parent. Mm. I mean, that does happen to some kids. They have to just raise themselves, you know, but they forge ahead and they, you know, make up this little story about uh, she's doing the best she can and you know, I'm, I must be something or other and I should be more. So we put all this extra expectation on ourselves because it's just too damn painful to realize that our parent is not really um, capable of doing their job. That's just one, one scenario. Most parents are just too busy or too distracted to meet all the child's developmental needs. So it's not like any real deficit on their part, not not an unusual amount of deficit. We all have deficits. Mm-hmm. But um, so I don't want to like say parents have to be horrible in order for us to grow up having had childhood wounds because uh, pretty much everybody, everybody, I think, had at least this wound or this fear story embedded. And that is the fear of not being enough. Because we were all little in a world of big people or bigger siblings or older people at school or teachers. You know, when you're little and everybody around you is big, you're going to be inept and not able to do things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the environment does kind of expect too much of you, just inadvertently. Like you do a stupid thing, like one of one of my clients. You know, they went out to a, a family. Um, Go take out to take out pizza, get pizza. And the kid is four years old, and somebody hands the kid one of the pizzas to hold. And you know, his body wasn't functioning too well, so he he dropped the pizza and it made a mess. And somehow out of that incident and probably a few others, he began to see himself as inept, not capable, mm. you know, and, be, and become a very sensitive person in his adulthood to making mistakes. And then, of course, his reactivity looks like defensiveness. Anybody says, you know, you've, you could have done it better, or why don't you try it this way? He's still protecting that little child who did disappoint the adults. So basically, what I'm saying is just to try to have us all drop into some empathy for what it might have been like if, or what it was, if you can remember, or might have been if you can't. You're little in a world of big people. You're going to feel inept sometimes. And maybe you'll have a lot of successes growing up and you'll overcome that not good enough feeling. But I kind of want to validate that if any of us have that, it, it comes from... <laughs> a real place of just being little and everybody around you, they know how to do things better than you. Mm-hmm. I feel the, I'm not good enough. I've, I've been there. I, I am there often. And it, it sounds fascinating because there's like a universality to it. 
a message, for example, like you're not good enough. But I'm also hearing that it's very unique and arbitrary almost to your experience. So the way I'm not good enough will be triggered differently than the way you might feel not good enough or my partner might not feel good enough. So it's like we're all walking around with these triggers around universal fears and insecurities, but they're going to they're going to happen for different subtle reasons. Does that feel true? Yes, yeah. Like for some for some people it it will be being ignored. And for some mm. people, it will be somebody making too many suggestions about how you might do things differently. Now, different things can trigger different ones of us. But usually what triggers me as a unique individual has something to do with something that happened long time ago that I didn't know how to handle and was painful. And so I just shut shut that part of myself away and it became a kind of avoidance strategy don't ever want to have that happen again so if i'm if i'm the kid that drops the pizza box i might be a little reluctant i mean I might i mean there's so many ways this could show up as an adult but i might be a little reluctant to take on too much responsibility I might not want to be an entrepreneur. I might, mm. or I might, what? I mean, there could be a lot of ways that I might avoid failure or the, the prospect of uh, possibly failing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, that, that resonates with me so much. The ways in which we hold ourselves back for fear of being triggered. It just, the world seems kind of unsafe because of these emotional landmines that we might step on at any moment. And there's something that yeah brings up sadness for me about the way myself and others don't fully show up because it's just so difficult to navigate this, this invisible, powerful, emotional uh, minefield. Yes, it's invisible until you get yourself into uh, groups like an authentic relating group or a marriage mm. or some kind of intimate situation with another person or others, then those hidden deficits are are going to get activated because you're, you know, you're avoiding, you're avoiding somebody calling on you in a group, let's say. You're hoping, you know, like in school, you're hoping you won't get called on because you weren't listening to the exercise that the group leader just <laughs> gave. No, so um, we're trying to avoid stepping on any of any of those landmines, but we will eventually step on them, and that's a good thing, as we were saying, because once you get a trigger reaction that's noticeable to yourself. And you can witness it. And in the book, I try to help people develop more of that witness consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because you really can't learn anything if you're totally so embroiled in an experience that you don't have any perspective. So once you can witness yourself, kind of, let's call it losing it or shutting down or something, then the learning begins and you can begin to say, oh, that's familiar. I'm getting triggered. And and this, I mean, there's so much hopefulness once a person is able to say, 
I'm starting to get triggered or I'm getting triggered or I just got triggered. Mm. Owning responsibility for something. And then that's the cue to begin feeling and sensing and noticing your thoughts around whatever the incident was that triggered you, like the sharp tone of voice or whatever it was. And once you learn that, oh, there's a lot more information about myself if I just pause and look into all these different reactions, like the thoughts, the feelings, the body sensations. So that's how you learn where you need healing. Nature wants us to get triggered because it indicates where we need healing, and then we can actively participate in our own healing. I love this reframe of the trigger as a moment to, to it's like an aha moment. Aha, yes. I'm triggered. Yes, this is, the, this is the moment to learn. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. If we can learn to value that. And so I'm, I, and, and you also with, with your book, Discomfortable, I, there's many of us now who are trying to normalize getting emotionally uncomfortable yeah. for the value that it has. And, you know, spiritual teachers have been talking about this for eons. It's not that new of an idea, yeah. but um, from Trigger to Tranquil, my new book really tries to make it a doable practice. You can learn some tools, some practices for looking inward, for calming yourself, for bringing compassion to yourself that really do reach back into that little child who you have abandoned, actually, because mm. You have not wanted the pain that might come from feeling how all alone you were at certain periods of your childhood. So you don't want to feel that. So you become an adult who has like a controlling personality and does different things to make sure you always get your own way or whatever, um, or at least tries to. But um, the hope is in finding that younger version who fears being alone and bringing some genuine empathy and compassion to that part of yourself. And we can learn to do this. So I'm hearing the power of noticing first. You know, we have to notice it. And then then there's like this, you talked about like kind of like a pause and acceptance. Okay, this is the time to learn. And then it's, I'm hearing like, you know, being with that discomfort with a with a compassionate, loving, kind of like reparenting your own child self in that moment. Is it is it kind of as simple as that? Well, what we're really doing is we're training our body mind to handle emotional pain in small doses. Mm. We've got the empathic witness activated, but we're also bringing up painful feelings of the thing that just happened oh, with my husband or my boss or something, or the painful thing that happened when I was six years old. So we're, we're bringing back some, some memories that were painful with the self-compassion part activated. And it's almost like the mother saying to the little kid, 
Emotional pain does not mean there's anything bad or wrong about you. Mm. It is bearable now because it's sort of like, because you're not all alone. You have me, this sort of bigger part of yourself that's awareness, that's the witness, the noticer. You have me with you here. And we're, it's like, we're in this together and you don't have to be afraid of emotional pain. And it, it all sounds like a script from a movie, AJ, mm-hmm. trying to describe something that's actually very subtle and nobody has to say those words. It's just when you drop into the pain using the carefully graduated steps that I put in the book, you don't just plow into emotional pain and, and expect everything to heal in one bi- one big catharsis. Right. It doesn't work that way, but you gently, so you don't scare yourself, you know, you gently go into the pain of that abandoned child or that rejected child, let's say, and hold it with a certain awareness. And each time you come out of one of those inner practices that I call compassionate self-inquiry, you're a little stronger, a little more able to tolerate what I call the normal pains of adult relationships. I'm not saying you should tolerate abuse or let yourself be a doormat, but we're just talking about insulting things that somebody else did that they they weren't even aware of it. Like maybe they did cut you off in the middle of your sentence because they were so excited about what they had to say, but it wasn't like against you, but you of course have this trigger. So you had to, you had to work with taking it personally. And Mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, a lot of people say, don't take anything personally. Well, I want to say, you probably will take something Mm -hmm. personally. Let's accept it. Let's relax into that and go wherever I take something personally, I can mine that for some real gold, for some real self-healing and self-insight. And that gives you a tremendous, a lot more power in life when you, uh, First, you have a vocabulary, and you know what to look for. Then you have some practices, and then you're constantly up-leveling your capacity to experience life. You're not avoiding pain. You're not like saying, "Oh, I couldn't say that. I couldn't ask. I couldn't ask for a date from from that attractive other person." Mm You know, oh, all those things, all those ways that we inhibit ourselves in, in ordinary daily ways. We don't do that anymore because, yeah, there'll be, there might be pain, the pain of hearing, no, I don't want to go out with you. And that, I'm not asking people to be casual about that. We should always be tender toward our pain. Mm. But remember, it's not going to kill us because we're big now. Mm. We have these new tools. We were little before and we didn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this resonates with my journey into shame so, so much that it's like eerie. And also I feel like a real pat on the back when I hear you speak. I'm like, yes, yes, okay. I feel like I I, I sensed into all of this, but with slightly different languaging. And, and, you know, what I'm hearing, and this is like, we live in this culture where yeah, we we don't want to take it personally and we don't want to get triggered. So we almost like fault ourselves when those things happen. But here you are saying that it's like, it's not about not getting triggered. It's not about not taking it personally. It's about being able to handle that in a way that you have a space of 
awareness and choice, even in a trigger, even in a, you know, gut reaction that says, oh, this is one thing. We can be like, yeah, of course, that's going to be the reaction. But I still have so much choice about how to react more compassionately or skillfully or connectively. Does that feel true? Yes, yes. And I want to come back to shame and triggering because so many people, this is why I wrote the book, AJ, so many people, most people still have a ton of shame around getting triggered. Oh, oh, you know, I I was reactive, I I overreacted and so forth. And they're, they're critical themselves. And I think you and I both, our, our mission in life is to like, reduce shame around being triggered by making it normal because first of all when you just when you have less less shame about it you'll have less need to blame others Mm. or or blame yourself you know shame is like like blaming yourself but but also when we think oh you know i shouldn't be triggered we're gonna be we're gonna be looking for well if you hadn't have done that i wouldn't have done this and um Half the wars that um, go on or the escalations or the uh, escalating arguments are are all of that nature. You know, if you hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. So we really, we really need to uh, get our higher brains back online in order to make any kind of decent decisions in life. Yeah, it's just so important to be able to see these powerful emotional messages and then like have that space and curiosity to to question them a little bit because you know as i hear you speak we in my experience when i get triggered it seems like everyone in the world should agree that this what has happened to me is the way i see it i have been wronged or i have been you know whatever it is but but as you mentioned before it's like that's just very unique to my childhood sense of the way things are and the person who triggered me you know in air quotes in my mind yes isn't intending and isn't seeing the the reality of my trigger meanwhile i've perhaps triggered them in some way that i don't see and it's like we're living on these two different realities and we need to be able to rise above it and say, like, well, what's happening over there for you? Like, is this your reality, too? Yeah. And then the, um, the typical co-triggering example is where one, one member of a couple, let's say, is avoidantly attached. Right. From the attachment language, that means that they get easily overwhelmed by too much conflict, too much stimulation, and they they need to move away. Whereas, and so, like, if there's a fight, they'll want to like take a break. Let's stop this, uh, or they'll want to convince the other person, uh, you know, be reasonable here. And then there's the preoccupied or anxious attachment style, which. No, we got to solve this right now. We've got to talk. Don't go away from me. Don't leave me. And and so the more he wants to withdraw, the more activated she gets. Let's just use he and she because mm-hmm. that's the way I first learned it way back. I mean, this is in the early marriage counseling texts. I got to tell you, AJ, in the, in the first text where I saw this reactive cycle written, 
the typical couple reactive cycle said she nags and then he <laughs> withdraws. I was pretty damn sexist. Yeah. But, but um, you know, there's there's there there's somebody's nagging and somebody's withdrawing, okay. Uh and the the more she pursues, the more he runs away, the more he runs away, the more she pursues. And neither of them think that they're doing harm to each other. They're trying to get a well, let's say the the preoccupied, the one one who can't stand separation, that person is is trying to get connection, and the other person is trying to get back the higher brain power that's needed, or trying to just survive and not get overwhelmed, so that that person can communicate again. So they're they're neither one one of them are against the relationship they each think they're trying to do the right thing yeah. until they but see what they need to do is step above and, and and so i have a chapter in there about getting triggered with your intimate partner and it's good for intimate partners to realize not just your trigger signature which is what i do and think and feel when I get triggered, but what happens to the two of us when we get triggered? What's our reactive cycle that we typically go into? Like the more you question me, the more I hide, and the more I hide, the more you question me. There's tons of those different kinds of uh, reactive cycles. And once couples can see what that cycle is and step out of it a little bit, they stop blaming their partner and they realize our cycle is what's the problem here. Let's work together to resolve what's going on in our cycle and not keep finding fault with the partner. Yeah. And I think you're touching into what has to be one of the big tragedies of the world. This, that one person's safety strategy is another person's trigger and vice versa. And how that is this, yeah, like this circle that just keeps feeding each other and everybody's trying their best but it's the exact opposite of what the other person like thinks that they need and i imagine i see this in groups as well these these cyclical almost like uh cultural battles being a a a version of this and i really appreciated this idea of co-triggering and and tell me what you think but it seems like there's a an interesting polarity in here where on the one hand, we're so um, drawn to blaming other people for our triggers that are unique to us. But then at the same time, we really can get co-triggered with our partner. We can almost like pick up their emotions because we're so, you know, our systems are so co-regulated. So it seems to me that like between co-triggering and blame is a very subtle line of owning your experience slash owning your impact. I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, a point that you sort of made that I want to emphasize here is if there's somebody who's close to you who is getting triggered like an intimate partner you're wired you're kind of wired together you know you said we're so co-regulated together and you know there's you know, we're kind of wired together mm-hmm. so if you're feeling unsafe my nervous system's going to pick that up and I'm going to start feeling unsafe 
then let's take that to groups because I know you, you know, you do different groups and these authentic relating groups. One person in the group gets triggered. I ask the whole group to pause. If, if it's, if, if it's evident, I also ask people to rate, you know, if I'm on zoom, I ask them to hold up their pen. If they're triggered, I give a little rap about triggering first and try to normalize it. And then people hold up their pen, but sometimes in a, and, and so then the group will, will pause. Or if that ground rule is not in place, it's not in place in most groups, that's just in my groups, mm-hmm. um, then you'll see evidence of triggering. And it's very good for a group leader or even another group member who's aware of this to say, you know, I noticed my own nervous system is getting activated. Could we pause? And I will set up a pause agreement with the group in the beginning, saying if you know if there's obvious triggering in the group, I will probably I can't always predict my behavior, but I will probably say the word pause or I'll, I'll ring this little chime, and that's a signal for us all to take three or four slow conscious breaths together, and then check back in and see how we're doing. And we don't necessarily put our attention on the on the triggered group member. That depends on whether they say they want it. But um, just I like to bring more consciousness about co-triggering, whether it's a group or uh, a couple. I like to bring more of that in into my work wherever I go. And in the book, I do um, have a whole chapter on what to do when you're triggered in groups or and then in the second chapter on what to do if people get triggered in a group you're leading. And I share some of these little gimmicks that I've devised um, over the years because I'm so passionate about this topic that I've been, I've been kind of wanting people to learn about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing you pausing and kind of yeah, compassionately normalizing, even right from the beginning yeah, someone might get triggered and we're just going to leave space for that. A, a, a time to kind of be together. You know, you talked about that internal metaphor of the mother figure looking after the inner child. And I'm imagining that in a group or in a relationship, you're kind of both, everyone might be a little bit of each role. Like, okay, we're co-triggered. We're all feeling a bit this but we're also creating space and acceptance and compassion for each other in this moment. So it's just sort of like giving yourselves time to regulate. And I'm imagining that that might also be quite connective. Do you find that? Yeah. Yeah. And and people become a little more aware of how we are connected together in, in this group energy, uh, kind of like how we're, we're all in this together, which Leads us to the world we're living in today, AJ. Yeah. Which, uh, it's really gotten heated up uh, in, in the last eight years or so um, in terms of polarization and syst- various systems breaking down and so forth. I mean, I mean, gee, let's not you know, make the list right now. But yeah. people are feeling something in the collective that is kind of akin to, I think, what we're talking about right now. Hmm. I noticed there's a chapter that I haven't gotten to yet where you start to talk about repair. And in a similar sense of like taking that pause and sharing a triggered moment together, 
uh, I think of repair as an opportunity to take disconnection and create even more strength. And I'm wondering if there is, you know, this repair process for triggering, wherein you can both, in the same way that when I get triggered, it's like, aha, it's a learning opportunity for me. Is there a space in relationship where we're co-triggered or in society where we're all triggered by what's going on, where we can repair together and create an even stronger sense of belonging? Well, let me um, play with that. Um, I don't have any final word on, on that, but it's a very provocative thing here. Let me start with the concept of repair and then see how that might uh, extend to the collective. Uh, In the repair process that I teach, it's basically for dyads. You you have uh, stepped on somebody's toes while you were triggered, let's say, and now you've done some inner searching and seeing, oh, that was... um, my my fear of being controlled. And when you suggested I did this thing, I reacted with a, a big anger. So then I'll come back and I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about how I reacted there, that I called you a uh, drill sergeant. I was triggered. That was probably my old fear of being controlled coming up. I'm sorry I said that. You didn't deserve that. Uh, Sometimes with intimates, we can even go have one optional line in there where when I heard those words, it brought back memories of how my dad was with me at age 10. You know, you can refer to something back in your childhood just just for the sake of intimacy and reminding that person that you are taking responsibility for your own triggers. So basically repair is owning that you were triggered, giving some indication that you're aware of what that trigger was about, that it was your own fear. And then saying something that addresses that fear, like I I need a lot of help feeling my own autonomy and feeling that people are not trying to control me. So you're, you're sort of like asking for help, that sort of thing. And it's a, it's a, you end with a reveal like that. And each time you and your partner, let's say, do a repair, you get a little more familiarity with where their insecurities are. And since they're owning them, often you're kind of motivated through your caring for the person to um, not do so many of the things that trigger them. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were stuck in an impasse and blaming situation, you might be hanging on to those behaviors that trigger them. Just you had, you would, because of not really being at choice, because when you're triggered, there isn't a a real choice in the matter. Mm. So I don't know how that, we could take that now to the collective, but uh, let's sit with that for a minute. And if you've got any ideas and I'm going to sit and see if I've got any ideas, but I, I do think just as I walk through life, realizing that I'm, I might step on some toes, just making an opinion about what I feel about something. I'm going to do a program tomorrow looking into people's 
polarized reactions to the COVID vaccine. Mm. And I'm inviting people to pause and look inward when they find that they're getting triggered about something. And some some of the people on my mailing list, because I, I sent out this announcement a few days ago, and some of them are saying, oh, boy, I've got a good case study for you. Boy, somebody said this and that, and I got really triggered. And and for me, AJ, I can honestly see both sides, both sides of the issue on this one, the vaccine issue. Mm-hmm. I am vaccinated, and I had no issues about being vaccinated, but I've been a, what would I say, a um, skeptic about the pharmaceutical industry for a long time. Mm-hmm. And other um, other abuses of power, let's just say. So, I, I can I can come down on both sides of that one, and it's going to be really interesting to try to do some of the things that you and I are saying, like let ourselves get triggered, notice what the trigger is, and try to repair that. With like maybe some people will realize that they have been. Um, acting out of a trigger with some of their family members, people in their community, and they may want to go back and, and do some repair and let the other person know, you know, I, st- I still have my position on the vaccine, but I see that how I'm holding that position was interfering with us and our ability to even listen to each other. And, and so when I heard you say this, it triggered this, and it's going to be real interesting for me because I uh, I used to facilitate all kinds of polarized things when I was younger, and then I got mm-hmm. to the point where I said, "Hey, I'm too old for this." <laughs> you know? But mm-hmm. I'm, but the but the culture's heated up so much. I've just got to get back into the ring with this stuff. Yeah, we 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 need you in that ring because, and I think this is exactly sort of what I had in mind that sometimes something akin to a trigger is connected to like a strong opinion for me. And it's sort of like driving a stance. And I, I then discover like, oh, there's like a lot of old emotion behind this stance. Like for me, a big one is a kind of anti-organized religion um, stance that has a slightly triggered or biasy feeling to it that, you know, has has a real reason like it it comes from some things in my past but it's not serving me to kind of hold it with such intensity anymore so it does seem like there's a kind of a beautiful space that you are creating where people can hopefully have their opinions and understand like why they have them but also have a bit more of that space that you described for connection with the other as well, because it just seems like if we're really going to actually impact each other with our opinions, it seems to me that it has to be through that connection space. No one's ever really convinced when I completely demonize and disconnect them. So yeah, like loosening these triggers that have opinions such that we can dialogue more openly seems really important. Yes, dialoguing openly, caring about what the other person has to say, and the other person, even if you disagree. The, this is a skill that, that I um, illustrate a lot in, in my book, Getting Real, the skill of holding differences, really being able to listen to somebody who 
has a very different opinion while not losing your own. But I think the the prescription for humanity now is to bring some heart into it. Because as you indicated, we cannot change somebody's mind other than through the influence of direct human relating. Mm. That's that if, if, if you want to influence somebody, you, you have to get a little bit involved with them. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's a tall order if we're, you know, we think we want to change a whole bunch of people's minds. But I think you can begin with the people in your world where you have some kind of a, a disagreement, whether it's religion, politics, the vaccine, um, poli- you know, any other thing I was going to say politics again, but I already said that. Uh, there's so much. <laughs> uh, so, so how do we keep our hearts open when somebody's point of view threatens you? We're back to how do I value learning from this kind of emotional pain, from this kind of trigger? Because mm-hmm. these are also evidence of your triggers, of your unconscious fears about something like mm-hmm. uh, atheism. You know, my partner's an atheist. I'm, I don't know what I am, but I'm probably against organized religion too, but not in a, mm-hmm. not in a heavy duty way because I actually um, had a kind of mature religion, uh, a, a, a as I was growing up, my parents took me to all different churches and mm. it, it was like, I got to see a lot of different worldviews. Nothing was shoved down your throat, but I became, I became inspired by the life of Jesus Christ just from my own study. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I have that. And my partner's an atheist and whenever anything, and, and we love Bill Maher, you know, and he's always talking about, you know, his anti-religious views. But when, the atheist holds on so so tightly. There might be something that you're, you're kind of like throwing out the baby with the bath, you know. And mm-hmm. and, any, and, and if, certainly if you're hold if you're holding on if you're a true believer and holding on to some religious doctrine, you're throwing out a lot of ability to think for yourself. Obviously, mm-hmm. so I was always taught to think for myself, uh, and I think my partner actually wasn't. And so he's still working that. And, you know, it's taken the form of anti-organized religion. And, 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 the, and the issue he's still working is I wasn't allowed to think for myself. And so that might be if we worked, you know, his reaction to, to some um, religious doctrines like the new abortion law in Texas or something like that, you know, he might get to work his childhood stuff around that. Mm. You know, I'd like to hear your comments about yourself around that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, as a gay man, I think I really associated organized religions entirely with homophobia. And also that question of, like, autonomy and and subjectivity were both really important to me. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of, you know, again, I now look at organized religion and I'm like, wow, there's so much wisdom in there. And I wasn't allowing myself to see any of it because of some somewhat legitimate concerns. And so it does seem really freeing to be able to kind of 
deconstruct the trigger and the bias and the emotion there to say, you know, like in your husband's case, for example, okay, so really what we might be against is those people within organized religion who are losing their autonomy, which isn't everyone and, you know, isn't necessarily every religion. And for me, it's like, okay, I'm really concerned about religions that are still saying, you know, homosexuality is a sin, it's objectively true. So that can be my much more um, productive, skillful focus rather than organized religion is bad. So that's what comes up for me. Beautiful, beautiful. And I think for each of us, and even around the COVID thing, and I'm, you know, I'll learn more about this tomorrow, but um, even around that, we'll find some very personal stories behind our positions. Yeah. I've, um, well, I've got, uh, my sister-in-law is um, in the South. She and I have had conversations because we're, we're very, very different on everything that has to do with racism and economic justice. So um I invite her, she's been a school teacher, she's retired now, but I invite her to tell me how she comes down on being in favor of of segregation from the beginning, this busing would never work, integration would never work. Uh, She talks about the welfare queens that Ronald Reagan Mm. used to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so I invite her to go one level deeper into what's that about for you? And being a school teacher in the South, she has really seen some isolated but unfortunate cases of how integration, you know, integration of races. So some people don't even know what that word means because this is a 50s term, you know, mm. uh, integration of races in schools, how that has led to nobody learning very much. And, and she's a very passionate about teaching. So I won't go into the exact stories, but when, when I try to connect with somebody who is very different from me about something that's also quite an important issue for me, I realize she has her own personal story around this, and I need to listen to that to kind of get into her shoes. So I, I wish you know, more of us would take the time to really inquire into what's what's your personal experience with this issue rather than staying on the level of positions and issues. Yeah, I'm really inspired by that because it shows how like I have judgment towards when I sense someone being stuck in a in a bias or something. But what you're saying is really beautiful. It's like, well, actually, AJ, if you dig into their bias, what are you going to learn? You're going to learn deep truths about them and their life experience and what's important to them. So it's it's actually like bias is an opportunity to really get to know someone. And then hopefully in that space of getting to know them and connecting, we can both kind of rise out of those specific experiences and see that there is a broader um, perspective of, of how things are above each of us. And maybe our bias is our way of creating safety for ourselves in the world. Yeah. Of course, it's kind of a false safety in a way, 
but let's let's be a little generous with one another while we're trying to uh, while we're trying to figure all this out. Let's just put it that way. While we're trying to develop the inner resources to listen to people who are really hard to listen to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in a way, uh, you know, as a social animal, I imagine that connection is a, a type of safety in itself. So in, in this compassionate understanding of how this person has been keeping themselves safe, if I can really hear that and connect with them, they might be able to say, well, now that I have connection, I can kind of let go of that old safety strategy in this moment. Like, we've got each other. Let's build something new. There really is some evidence that that kind of thing works. I used to, um, I used to lead tea groups back in the 60s and 70s during the Vietnam War era. And this is a little history for you young folks. But <laughs> we used to have the hawks and the doves. We used to have anti-war protesters. Right. And, you know, I was on that side. And then we had the hawks who really believed in the war and wanted to serve their country and, and be heroes and patriots and, and so forth. So we had this polarization. But in uh, the tea groups that I used to lead, they, w- they would last for six or seven days. We'd be in the same room. We'd, be, you know, we'd meet for long hours, you know, nine in the morning to nine at night. Wow. We'd have meals you know, in a common dining room at a, you know, at a resort. Uh, this was when businesses used to pay for their employees to come to these things. Okay. So a lot of the businesses were um, munitions manufacturers, um, people who you know made bombs and airplanes for the war and so forth. Uh, so I would almost always in a group, you get kind of, you get some kind of polarization in, in, mm. in any group. Uh, I could talk about all the different types of polarization sometime, but um in these groups, because that was such a heavy-duty theme in the culture, the war, and whether it was right or wrong to be in Vietnam, um, you know, uh, it's like an authentic relating, here and now, I, thou, let's just mm. connect heart to heart. Mm. We, didn't talk about, we didn't talk about the war at first. We just bared our souls with each other and got connected and after about three days and the war and the polarization started coming out, but because we had so much caring already built for one another, we, we could both um, listen to positions that were different, but people were questioning their own positions. There was more humility because they felt so safe with each other. If we can create more environments where people feel so safe, I'm, I remember several people saying, you know, I, I don't want to work for Lockheed, but I have four kids and a wife and they're all depending on me. And I, re- you know, I, I really feel trapped. And, you know, and for my business, I have to belong to this golf club and I, I have to talk like everybody talks and I don't even know what I believe, but, you know, but when I hear you other people talking, I'm, I'm really moved by your, your, your argument about why are we in Vietnam and so forth. So um, people were safe enough to get humble with each other. And (laughs) I, I don't know if we've got any social forms right now, that can create that that much togetherness 
of strangers, because these are like perfect strangers, and they weren't mm-hmm. even people who were into personal growth. They they just um, some of them were sent there because they need needed better communication skills, you know. But what they got out of it was much much more. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I would love to have been a fly on a wall or a participant in these tea groups I hear about from back in the day. I hope that culture does reemerge. But, you know, I look at your book as it it's sort of like we each can be creating a little bit of that kind of culture in our ability to notice our own triggers and and be with them and talk about them instead of kind of uh, getting uh, completely hijacked by them. And so I feel like I'm kind of a missionary who I want to go out and spread this kind of self-awareness so that people can just each of us be a little uh, a little drop in the bucket of a new way of being able to interact with other humans. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of this work that you're doing. And I, I'm curious, like, how else can people engage? Obviously, um, I really recommend that people check out this book, From Triggered to Tranquil. But what other ways can people engage with your work? Or do I hear that you have this thing coming up tomorrow? Of course, by the time this podcast comes out, that will be in the past. But maybe you can give us a sense of what else we can do to engage with you. Well, I'm going to put a recording of that up on YouTube and probably on my Facebook page, too. So um, even though this podcast will come out later, I'm not sure what I'll call it, but it'll be the October 5th um, free group coaching call that Susan Campbell does on the first Tuesday of every month. So one way that people can continue to engage with me on this kind of stuff is go to susancampbell.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And in the newsletter, I only send it out once a month. Uh, there's always an announcement for the time and the Zoom link for the free call. So you won't be, we won't be talking about COVID necessarily in in the future, but we may have some other themes where people get triggered by something going on in the world around you. Now that's Mm. the last chapter of the book. You get triggered by something in the world around you and how to start with whatever that feeling and inner story is and follow that all the way down. And you might, you might find some of your own unfinished childhood business at the root of some of these positions that you're taking. And hopefully that'll be interesting and not, you know, not too disconcerting for you. You don't have to change your positions, but you'll hold them with more humility if you understand that tender place where they originated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hear themes of self-awareness and self-acceptance, which doesn't necessarily change the opinion, but it just, it creates such a much more congruent whole relationship with yourself to understand why do I have this opinion? Why is this so important to me? And to be okay with the the ways in which we feel unsafe that can polarize us to kind of one opinion or another. I like, I just see, I see no downside to what you're proposing. Yeah, good. It's, it's really in our own best interest to make this world safe for differences because we're making the world safe for our own uniqueness as well. 
Yeah, yeah. We're making the world safer for ourselves. And that's just like spreading a sense of safety, I imagine, that is going to make others feel safer as well, especially once we get into things like co-triggering and group triggering and the way it can spread. So, um, yeah. So I really want to thank you for coming on the show. And I look forward to finishing this book, which I'm halfway through and really enjoying. And um, I hope that we can speak again sometime. I'd love that. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. Thank you.